This is The Detail. I'm Kate Gimasalamani. A movement to pardon Tuhoi prophet and pacifist rural Kenana 80 years after his death is underway. Today, why it's taken so long and why his story still means a lot today. The first reading of the Rua Kenana Pardon Bill was passed in Parliament yesterday, which was an emotional time for both politicians and the descendants of Rua Kenana. It declares the restoration of the character, mana and reputation of Rua Kenana, his uri inga unga tamariki of Iharaira. A visionary leader for uh, uh, Tuhue, for his people of Maunga Pohatu, and the amazing works that he did. Amazing. For the purposes of independence and tenorangatira tanga and connecting his people with their whakapapa and the whenua. Rua Kenana was born in 1868 and he died just over 80 years ago. So to find out more about him, I had to reach out to the people keeping his story alive, his family. I should mention Rua had 12 wives and 70 children, so it's a big family, but we'll get to that later. First, you'll hear from Richard Tumarai, one of Rua Kenana's great-grandchildren, from his first wife. So Rua married uh, Pina Pine, who had um, my grandmother, which is uh, Ms. Fakatata Mere. Later, you'll hear from Professor Tairahia Black, Rua Kenana's grandson. Our grandmother, Naperadini, was wife number eight for Rua Kenana. <laughs> but back to Richard. Having missed out on New Zealand history during my schooling, I needed Richard to start at the very beginning. Um, he was born in uh, Maungapuatu. I'm not sure whether you know where Maungapuatu is. I've looked it up. It okay. looks, in the stories I've heard, it was quite an interesting place. What was Maungapuatu like at that time? I would imagine back then, prior to him clearing the land, it would have been uh, bush-clad and steep mountainous terrain all around. But back in those days, uh, I would imagine that they found it pretty uh, harsh, to say the least, climate-wise, distance-wise, and, of course, trying to uh, acclimatise to to their new living environment. And, of course, uh, Mungapuatu being landlocked um, was probably one of the last bastions, if you like, of lands within Tiwiriwera that, that wasn't able to be accessed and, and of course, sold from there on in. Richard tells me Rua Kenana was born into a time where the Crown's relationship with Māori was deteriorating. He grew up in the Ringatū faith, a religion based on the Old Testament, led by prophet Te Koti. At 25, Rua had a calling of his own. Te Koti Te Rikirani, the prophet at that particular time, forecast that there would be a child to follow him, and he would come from the east and in the mountains of that particular region. And it was from there that he um, ascended to become the prophet uh, Rua Kenana. What was he wanting to gain from creating that settlement? It was about people managing their lives. So it was an isolated community that just wanted to to do things the way they wanted to rather than the government telling them what to do. This is an incredible story. This man is 25 years old when he declares himself a prophet. Mm -hmm. What is it about him as a person that 
people believed in him. It was his ability to relate to the teachings of the Bible, and he preached all over the Bay of Plenty. But also, in amongst a lot of people, they took consciousness of what he was talking about, and they just wanted to remain as themselves in a particular place that's away from all the modern hustle and bustle of life at that particular time. So that's his journey into the wilderness, as some people would say, and that's to Mangapohati. Rua decided to emulate King Solomon, known for his wisdom and wealth. He called his followers the Israelites. Like Solomon, Rua had 12 wives, and in an effort to unite his people, his wives came from different Tuhoi tribes. Richard tells me he brought his followers to Mongapohatu, which at the time was dense bush. He clear-felled a large uh, portion of bush into grasslands. So there was a lot of wood that was around, and they utilised that to build their um, whares. Um, hygiene hmm. uh, was one, because there was an epidemic up there, typhoid. Right. Yes. And so he tried to implement good hygiene in Mongapohatu. Yes, better housing. And at one particular time, there was a substantial amount of people there, over a thousand. Main Street there, they had a bank, a shop, community hall, and he was able to function uh, quite well for um, a substantial period of time. I understand there, there was this one particular building called Zion. Yes. And a lot of people have compared it to the beehive. Yes, that's correct. Um, in fact, uh, one article uh, that was printed some time back, um, they called it the Big Steel and compared the roundhouse, the parliament buildings, to the roundhouse at Mungapuatu. Rua Kenana was a pacifist and a prophet who led the resistance to Māori fighting overseas in the First World War. His staunch anti-war rhetoric offended the government and Pākehā. He was a pacifist. That's correct. Was that the reason for all the friction between him and the Crown? In some small way, uh, that could be correct. Uh, he and they just wanted to live uh, their lives peacefully in Mungapuatu. And of course, the Crown, 1907-1908, didn't quite like what he was doing in that small community of his in Mungapuatu. But also with that, sir, there came suspicion by the Pākehā, as there always was. Soon as someone of, uh, of great influence and charisma uh, in Māori, and particularly in the 19th, 20th century, unfortunately, the, the settlers of governments of the time saw that as a threat. So the, the Suppression Act was brought into being to somehow control them. Well, he was classified as a tohuna or prophet in the crown, believing that he was trying to, to do no good as regards uh, government policy at that time. So by enacting this new act, they would be able to control him in some way. Was it anything specific that Rua Kenana and his people were doing that angered the crown, or was it just the fact that they were trying to be independent? Uh, probably both. The crown had some prior dealings with Rua, and didn't allow him to do what he wanted to do. And, of course, there was other, other ways of trying to, to control him. Selling alcohol, for instance, um, what was known then as slide-grogging. But those kind of charges probably didn't warrant um, all the attention. And then, of course, the invasion of Mungapotu uh, later on. 
1916, a police contingent of 17 men came to arrest Ruakinana on charges relating to the consumption of liquor outside of a pub. It was a law that only applied to Māori. A first attempt to arrest Rua was made in February 1916. Lua told the constables that he would not accompany them and that he had already served a prison sentence. For the next attempt at arrest in April 1916, 70 armed police set out. Lua and his people witnessed the long line of marches of police and pack saddles and uh, the police commissioner coming into Mangapohatu. Professor Tairahia Black, Rua's grandson, says Rua and his people were outnumbered. They were there to stop the profit movement. They were there to arrest Rua Kena. They were there to send a signal by the Crown, for the Crown, that there is only one law in this country, and that is the Crown's law. Rua Kena and his people prepared in a peaceful way to receive the police commissioner and the police. And as it turned out, it wasn't peaceful. During the arrest, there was an exchange of gunfire in which Rua's son, Tokorua, and another young man, Te Maipi, were killed. Three other Mangapohatu residents and four police officers were wounded. 31 Mangapohatu men were arrested and held up for three days. And the worst of all, and it's in the song, Kaore te whakamā ia hau ki te Line 13, 14, 15, Rua eldest daughter was gang-raped by the police. The police were never held accountable, but Rua was arrested and faced what was at the time the country's longest ever trial. In the 49 days of court case that was held in Auckland uh, High Court, in Lundy, Rua Kenola's, um, lawyer, argued on the principle of the, the only uh, position that Ruakenon was guilty of was moral resistance. All the other cases could not be proved. Now, when the verdict was read out that, uh, that Ruakenon was to be subjected to 18 months to two years hard labour, 10 of the jurors made the point in the Auckland Star that we disagree with the... Um, uh, the verdict that has been read out, that we can only find that the Prophet Ruakenana was guilty of moral resistance. While Rua was doing hard labour at Mount Eden Jail, his people started to follow other faiths. When he returned to the settlement in 1918, a lot of the land had been confiscated and some of his people had left. Over the next 15 years, the Israelite movement declined and Rua left Mongapohatu. He moved to Matahi, where he later died, but his story continued to be told and was passed down through his descendants, like Richard Tumarai and Tairahia Black. You know, having grown up, having been brought up in Ruatoki, in Tuhue, in and around uh, real-speaking communities, my generation was absolutely privileged to see and hear the cadence and the rich oratory and sung poetry being performed almost every day on our marais throughout mm. Tuhue. And we were just children. We were children that we would play on the marae, play next to the marae, and hear these Gregorian chants, traditional music, traditional items, 
And, you know, you sit back as a child and you look across the marae and you go, how on earth do these people remember so much? And how do they sing with such personality, creating a living repository of traditional music through their uh, language, through their revitalization of their performance, and their dress. They were always beautifully dressed. And I suppose my generation, not just me, but my generation witnessed these, uh, at the time, were just musical items. Later on, I came to understand them as traditional knowledge, uh, sharing of knowledge, the creation of knowledge, and the reclamation of knowledge. Did you hear the story of Ruakenana through Waiata? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. The journey to have Ruapadan started in the 1970s. Descendants started sharing and rediscovering his story. But it was another 30 years before they could work with lawyers in the Waitangi Tribunal in 2005. Then this month, decades after, their hard work paid off, with the government making two announcements, Ruakainana's pardon and that teaching of New Zealand history would be compulsory in schools by 2022. I'm quoting now directly uh, from Judith Binney's publication, (laughs) Uh, Never Ending Stories, 2010. And this is what she said. If we who live in the present in Aotearoa can discuss our shared history in the 19th and 20th centuries, then we may gain from the past. If we cannot do this, then we will have learned nothing from the past and we will have exchanged nothing with each other. Now, the classic case of this is the 12th of September in the Parliament. The Prime Minister made that very, very formal, beautiful announcement. We should make the choice that to know our history is to better understand ourselves and our future. And so today we remove the chance and we announce a millennium moment that New Zealand history will become part of our core curriculum in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, the afternoon of the 12th, uh, the Honourable Nanaya Mahuta delivered the first part of the pardon bill for Ruakinata. The Waitangi Tribunal report concluded that the police used excessive force in arresting Rua at Maungapohatu. It is not clear that there was good reason to reactivate Rua's suspended sentence for liquor charges, which were used in large part to justify the arrest. Rua has borne a lasting stigma because of the Crown's treatment of him. The final form of this stigma was a guilty verdict for moral resistance. But I thought the centre... Adern's message was extremely powerful, insightful, and I could almost hear right across the country, including every profit movement in the country, 
just this quiet silence of the validation of what a millennium moment is. There were about 20, 30 of us there, the researchers, the lawyers. In the gallery upstairs, I was sitting by David Williams. David Williams is a professor of law from Auckland University. Um, and we were both sitting together because we were part of all the bringing all the evidence together. And the people from Mangapohati were there. Yeah, it was a, a most beautiful moment for anyone to savor after a hundred years. And for me personally, 30, 40 years of research. <laughs> Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson says she's hurt. She doesn't know this part of New Zealand's history. I wanted to get further than the start of my speech before I um, started having a tangi. It's quite hurtful to be an educated Wahine Māori political leader in this house and not know this history. How important is it that students across the country learn about stories like Rua Kenana's? Well, I'm hoping the next successive generations of uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, tribal people, um, by the time we depart this happy world of ours, this new defining world of ours, that the next generations will be able to look into their history and and live uh, with the knowledge and the scholarship that heritage is uh, as important as a form of engagement to the wider community in promoting ourselves within this country. So important. You know, when I was at St. Stephen's School and, and Education, and you've probably heard this line before, mm. I know all about Rasputin and Russia. I know all about the Kaiser. I know all about everything mm. about Europe. And then I had to relearn through my research and the efforts that I had to do was to reclaim and rewrite all the history that had been taken away. How important is it? Well, <laughs> enormously important for the well-being, for the culture, for the identity of the people of Mawapua. Richard Tumarai says the fight for Rua's descendants is not over just yet. Until the royal assent is signed, um, then we can start um, celebrating, if you like, or patting ourselves on the back. So you're not celebrating yet? No. No, as I said, we've still got somewhere to go yet. For me, um, there is a saying that um, and until the Crown acknowledges the, what happened at Maungapuatu, the blood will always still Andrew's family will gather at Mongapohatu in November before the third and final reading of his pardon in Wellington. That's it for today. I'm the Details Associate Producer Kathy Masalamani. The Detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a rating as it helps other listeners find us. If you liked today's episode, check out Matangarea with Morgan Godfrey, a new RNZ video and podcast series giving insights into the political careers of six former Māori MPs. 
This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Sharon Brett Kelly and Alexia Russell. Noho Romai.